0: good morning, I'm Rachel, and if you're a shy person, the hardest part of the morning is over. (laughs) Uh, Well, as Nina said, it's my passion to restore the institution of medicine uh, to becoming a work of service and a spiritual path. But um, I'm not going to talk about that this morning. Uh, I'd like to share some thoughts with you this morning, thoughts which I have not um, completely thought through. Uh, they're not perfectly packaged, and I, I used to keep such thoughts um, to myself. But uh, as I've gotten older, I've come to believe that anything worth saying is worth saying half-assed. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd offer these thoughts to you um, in the hope of uh, seeding the dialogue, the very vital dialogue that's going on among us here, and also perhaps um, seeding the dialogue between you and yourself. Um, I have no slides. Uh, I'm a storyteller. So I'm going to be sharing some stories, my stories, other people's stories. Uh, A good story, of course, is like a compass, it points to something true and invites us to orient our own direction um, according to it, Uh, perhaps even to live a little better. And the best stories remind us uh, of who we are, what matters, what we can do, what we can be. They help us to see ourselves differently and to see the world differently as well. So what I want to talk about this morning is um, making a difference. Making a difference. Being a change agent. And I wanted to share some of the old wisdom about being a change agent. The wisdom that's been passed down in some of the oldest stories about how the world is made and how we make a difference in the world. So, uh, let me start with a story from the 14th century. Um, this is a story that my grandfather told me almost 65 years ago, when I was very small. And Grandpa was an Orthodox rabbi, uh, a student of Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition. Um, he was a flaming mystic. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also a wonderful storyteller, and this is the story he told me about the birthday of the world. In the beginning, there is only the holy darkness, the source of life, and at some point in the history of things, the whole world as we know it, the world of a thousand, thousand things, emerges as a ray of light from the heart of the holy darkness. And then, perhaps because this is a Jewish story, there's an accident. (laughs) And the vessels that contain the wholeness of the world break open, and the light of the world is scattered into an infinite number of sparks of wholeness which fall into all events, all organizations, all people, and remain deeply hidden there until this very day. Now, according to my grandfather, the whole human race is a response to this accident. We are all here because we are able to discover and uncover the hidden wholeness in all life's events and all people. We're able to tend it, to strengthen it, to lift it up, and make it visible once again. And by doing so, we are able to restore the wholeness of the world. And this collective task involves everybody. Everyone who's ever been born, everyone alive, everyone yet to be born. And in Hebrew, the task is called tikkun olam, restoring the world back into its original wholeness, healing the world. So according to Kabbalah, every one of us is a healer of the world. And tikkun olam is synonymous with the word service. And the story, of course, suggests that our ability to heal the world defines us as human beings. It is central to our human nature. It links us to the very purpose of our lives, and all of us are made in such a way that we can make a difference. Now, Grandpa was talking to a very little girl. I was four at the time, and I wouldn't have understood words like restore or heal these were big words for me, so he used another language, a language which was a part of his own life. And he said to me, Nishumala, you can become a blessing. You can bless the life around you. And I understood this because my grandfather blessed me all the time. Every Friday he would light candles and he would speak to God And when he was finished talking to God, he would call me to him, and he would put his hands on the top of my head. And first he would thank God for making him my grandpa. And then he would tell God something about me that was true. And every week I would wait to find out what that was. (laughs) You know? If I failed, he would appreciate um, how hard I tried. If I made mistakes during the week, he would mention my honesty in telling the truth. If I'd slept for only five minutes without my nightlight, he would celebrate my courage for being able to sleep in the dark. (laughs) These few moments were the only time in my week I felt safe. And at rest, my family of physicians and health professionals We're always struggling to learn more and to be more. It it was never enough. If I brought home a 98 on a test, my father would ask whatever happened to the other two points. And I pursued those two points throughout my childhood. But my grandfather didn't care about such things. For him, I was already enough. And when I was with him, I knew with absolute certainty That this was so. My grandfather died when I was seven. At first, I was afraid that without him to see me and tell God who I was, I might disappear. But slowly over time, I came to understand that in some mysterious way, I had learned to see myself through his eyes. And once we are blessed, we are blessed forever. Many years later, when in her extreme old age, my socialistic and agnostic mother began to light candles and talk to God herself, (laughs) I told her about these blessings and what they'd meant to me. She smiled at me sadly. I have blessed you every day of your life, Rachel, she told me. I just never had the wisdom to do it out loud much in life diminishes us. Many people function far below the level of their wholeness and their integrity. They do not know their full potential, and they can live their entire lives unaware of it, and they never will achieve it. When people have not discovered their dream of wholeness, their personal dream, and they have not been enabled to move towards it, They fall victim to cynicism and hostility and bitterness and depression. They become envious and alienated and resentful of others. The increasing levels of violence around us can be thought of as the outcome of thwarted potential, potential that has been denied not only for a single lifetime, but for generations. When you bless someone, you expand them. You offer them a place of refuge from everything that conspires to diminish them. Refuge is a place of self-remembering. It's a relationship where someone else sees us and values our dream of ourselves before we can. And by seeing it and enabling it, we make it real. You know, the future is actually determined by the potential in the present, the potential in each one of us. And in these critical times in the human story, times when potential, these are times when potential cannot be wasted. Those who commit to uncovering the hidden wholeness, the potential in others to witness it, believe in it, and strengthen it, may become the architects of the future of the world. So, I thought I would throw the idea of blessing into the, into the idea mix. The possibility that we may each develop a personal relationship with the idea of blessing, and make blessing a way of life. You know, there's another story, a wisdom story about making change. It has to do with the fact that there is a hidden web of connection between us, and that we're not alone. And most of us have become so distracted, so busy, so separated from the world around us and the world within us, that we may not have noticed the web of connection that lies between all of us. And in the Indian way, there is a person called Grandmother Spider. Grandmother Spider weaves up and strengthens the web of connection between us. And I've always thought that she does this by telling stories. And the web of connection confers great power on each of us to change the world around us. It confers on us the power to become a blessing in the world. And because of the web of connection between us, we've already blessed many more people than we know. We can even bless the life in total strangers. And let me tell you a story about this. I have a friend called Elaine, who is an expert on domestic violence, um, spouse abuse and she has saved the lives of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of, of people, mostly women, through her writings, and her teachings, and her talking on the radio, and on the television. And I was having dinner with her one night in the place where she lives. Uh, I was visiting there. And I looked at her across the table. She's very small, she's about five feet tall, and she's as delicate as a porcelain cup. And I found myself wondering, how did she get into this field? This field of abuse, you know, and violence. And so I asked her, and she said, Oh, Rachel, I used to be one of these women. And then she told me that her first husband was an abusive and violent man, but he had all also been a pillar of the community. And in public, he had always treated her like a perfect gentleman. So people actually envied her, her life, and her marriage. No one dreamed that her private life was a living hell. And like many abusers, he had told her the abuse was her own fault because of the stupid things she said and the stupid things she did. And over the years, she'd keep trying harder and harder, and was never good enough and she became so ground down that she actually believed she deserved to be treated in this terrible way. Now, all of this ended abruptly one day on a street corner in New York City. She and her husband were visiting, and they're standing on the corner waiting for the light to change. And she looks across the street, she sees this beautiful Art Deco building, and she turns to her and she says, Honey, look at that beautiful building! And he, thinking that they are alone, speaks to her in the tone of utter contempt that he reserved for their private conversations. And he says something like, Oh, that building over there, the one that anyone with eyes in their head would know is just like every other building on the street? You're such an idiot! And she did what she'd been doing for years. When he spoke to her like that, she just uh, fell silent. But a perfect stranger, a woman standing next to him, also waiting for the light to change, turned to him in disbelief and said, what? That's a perfectly beautiful building. She's absolutely right. And you, sir, are a horse's ass. <laughs> and then the light changed. <laughs> and this, this stranger crossed the street, you know, went on with the rest of her life. But Elaine told me that this was the moment that her whole life changed. In this moment, she suddenly understood she had never deserved to be treated like this. She understood what had been happening in seven and a half years of marriage. And she felt something within her, something completely unfamiliar. A sort of a certainty. That's how she said it, a certainty. And she knew that it would take time and it would take planning and it wasn't going to be easy. But she was going to be able to leave this man. Right? Now, this isn't a story about Elaine. This is a story about the stranger. Because if we were to go to New York today and somehow find her and say to her, excuse me, ma'am, have you ever blessed and strengthened the life in anybody? I somehow doubt she'd say, oh yeah, 20 years ago on that street (laughs) corner in New York waiting for life. No, I don't think she'd say that at all. I think most likely she'd say, what? (laughs) Me bless lives? Do I look like a holy person to you? So Kabbalah says, everything has in it a dream of itself, a hidden wholeness, and that it's possible to collaborate with that dream to strengthen it. And this requires making a commitment to develop the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it, to recognize what it may need from us. And my grandfather taught me a lesson about this when I was also a little one. And you know, he never actually told you anything, never taught you anything. He would sort of create the conditions where you could discover whatever it was he wanted you to learn all by yourself. And then you'd run to him with this discovery, and he would be surprised, and he'd say, how wonderful Neshumala, right? So he wanted me to discover our relationship to the hidden wholeness in the world, to develop an eye for it, and to understand my power with respect to it. And so, one of the Sundays that he visited me, he brought me a little cup. I was very excited because his presents were always magical and wonderful like he was. But when he handed me this little paper cup, it was filled with dirt. (laughs) I wasn't allowed to play with dirt. (laughs) And I told him that I was disappointed, and he just laughed. And he took me into the kitchen, and he showed me how to put a little bit of water into the cup. And he said, Nishumala, if you put a little water in the cup every day, something may happen. Now. This made no sense to me at all. I lived on the sixth floor of a walk-up in New York City. I had no context for what might happen if you put water on dirt. (laughs) But, you know, grown-ups were always telling me things that didn't make sense. Cross on the green, not on the red. Why? And I loved my grandfather, so I promised him that I would put a little bit of water in the cup every day. Well, the first week was easy. I was excited something was going to happen, but nothing did. And the second week was harder. And when he came to see me the second Sunday, I tried to give the cup back to him. (laughs) But he wouldn't take it. He just said, every day, Yishima. And the third week was very hard. Sometimes I'd forget, and I wouldn't remember until after I'd been put to bed, and I'd have to sneak down into the kitchen and put a little water in the cup, but I didn't miss a single day. And one morning, there were two little green leaves in the cup that hadn't been there the night before. I was astounded. Astounded. I was sure my grandfather would be just as surprised as I was. But he wasn't. (laughs) What he said was, Ah, Nishumala, life is everywhere, even in the most hidden and unexpected places. And I was delighted. And I said, And all it needs is water, Grandpa? (laughs) And he said, No, Nishumala, all life needs is your faithfulness. So the old wisdom, we are born with the power to befriend the life around us and the life within us, and repair the world. All life needs from us is our faithfulness. Is our faithfulness. Um, have you noticed that none of these stories seem to be about anger? Right? Right? You know, perhaps anger isn't what's required to change the world. Perhaps wholeness is rarely, if ever, the outcome of anger. You know, anger is a demand for change. Often it's the first demand. When we first see something that's unjust, we become angry. But anger uh, is only a tool of change. When it becomes a way of life, it becomes very limiting of our power to make change. The future of the world is not based on anger and blame and judgment. On the contrary, we cannot solve the problems in this world by engaging at the level of the problem. So, what is the old wisdom about sustainability? What will it take for the survival of the world? Let me tell you another story from the 14th century. It's a story about the Lamed Vav. Lamed Vav in Hebrew means 36. And this story was also told me by my grandfather when I was small. And what he told me was that the survival of the world depends on there being a minimum number, uh, at least, Thirty-six people in the human race who are capable of responding to the suffering in the world. Capable of responding to the suffering of people they don't even know. And if this number falls below 36, the world will come to an end. The experiment which is the human race is over. It has failed and the world will come to an end. So I was about three or four. I was impressed. <laughs> I was impressed. Who are these people? <laughs> they must be very famous people if, if the survival of the world depends on them. So I asked my grandfather who they, who they were. I was sure he knew, but he didn't. And he said, no one knows who they are. They don't know who they are. So it behooves you to treat everyone as if they are one of the 36 on whom the survival of the world depends. And these people, they don't respond to the suffering because they know the continuity of the world depends on it. They respond to the suffering simply because the suffering matters, simply because it matters. Now, now, this story made me worry when I was little, you know. Well, what do these people need to do? It must be something very hard if the whole world depends on it. And what if they couldn't do it? What if they can't do it? What then? So I asked my grandfather, what if, the, what if they can't do it? What is it they're supposed to do? And he laughed and said, Nishumala, they don't need to do anything. They respond to the suffering in the world with compassion. Compassion for people you don't even know is the foundation of the continuity of the world. Compassion for people who have a different language, a different name for God, people who share only a common humanity with us. So our culture places such an emphasis on technology and science, expecting them to create a better future for us. You know, perhaps we create a future out of something very different than that. One of my students wrote a commitment statement to his future patients, to their suffering. And what he said was this. This is a great big hunk of a guy. It looks like a football player. And he wrote this in a class where I had 36 other medical students also writing their commitment statements and reading them out loud so that they could recognize the community of service that they belong to. And his, his commitment statement went like this. May you find in me the mother of the world. May my hands be a mother's hands, my heart be a mother's heart. May my response to your suffering be a mother's response to your suffering. May I sit with you in the dark as mother sits in the dark. May you know through our relationship that there is something in this world that can be trusted. You know, perhaps we have relied too much on the power of science and technology to make life better. You know, the past five years have showed us all the limitations of science and technology and expertise. We have the technology to build buildings that are 110 stories high, to make planes and fuel them that can fly across the country in six hours and around the world in a single day, We can even enable people who are fleeing for their lives to talk to other people about it on their cell phones. And every one of us has seen on TV the expertise which enables us to unleash incredible destruction on innocent people. So it's clear that our expertise has not made us whole, and it will not make the world whole either. It's going to take something different than that. It's going to take our remembering the power in the web of connection to one another and having the courage to use that power. It may take our becoming willing to bless others out loud. The future may depend on our remembering that everything has in it a dream of itself, that the seeds of wholeness and the seeds of needed change are already present in all events and all people and every one of us, and that the wholeness of the world can only be restored one heart at a time. And so I'd like to close by inviting you to sing with me a song about our wisdom. And um, I'm going to sing it. It's very short. I'll sing it once. My voice is terrible. Don't be shy. Sing out loud. (laughs) And then maybe we can all sing it together. Some of you may know it. It goes like this. It's in every one of us to be wise Find your heart, open up both your eyes. We can all know everything without ever knowing why it's in every Again, it's in every one of us to